Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of animal abuse, child abuse, and child sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. If you suspect that a child has been abducted or is the victim of abuse, resources are available through the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Visit missingkids.com or call 1-800-843-5678. They say that evil prevails when good people do nothing. If you know a murder is going to happen and do nothing to prevent it, are you just as guilty? If you hand a loaded gun to a killer, you may as well have pulled the trigger, right? To be complicit is to help someone commit a crime. But oftentimes the accomplice escapes the spotlight. Society remembers the monster, not the person who stood loyally at their side. Today, we're going to ask, is the henchwoman ever as responsible as the heavy? In the case of Wanda Barzee, practiced classical musician, mother of six, and co-kidnapper of Elizabeth Smart, maybe, perhaps she's even more at fault. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll meet Wanda Barzee and Brian David Mitchell, a couple hell-bent on preaching their own brand of dogma to Salt Lake City's homeless population. Their misdirected fervor led them to kidnap 14-year-old Elizabeth Smart from her childhood bedroom. They stole her innocence and abused her physically and emotionally day after day for over nine months. Next week, we'll discuss the part Wanda played in keeping Elizabeth captive. We'll detail her deep-seated jealousy of her hostage, her repeated abuse of the child, her conviction, and her contested early release. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name. 
where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Wanda Barzi grew up in a full household. She was the middle child of three sisters. Janice, Wanda, and baby Evelyn were close. The girls stayed up most nights talking about their dreams of the future. Wanda's goal never changed. She wanted a man to love and protect her. It was all she cared about. While all three girls were well-liked, Wanda seemed, naturally, to garner extra attention. She was the quietest, the primmest, and the most proper of the three Barzi sisters. Plus, she was a devout Mormon, the most religious in her family. But from an early age, perhaps five or so, Wanda's sisters noticed in her a disquieting intensity. Her thoughts always raced to anxious worry, which made her a tough companion. To quiet the noise in her head, her mother suggested she take up piano, but even that became pathological. She practiced maniacally, night and day. At times, her mother had to drag her away, kicking and screaming, so her sisters could practice too. By 1952, seven-year-old Wanda's anxiety increased. She grew even more bashful as she aged and clung to her mother's leg for far longer than any child should. Even her little sister sensed that Wanda was, at heart, a follower. While little Evelyn could be pretty self-sufficient, Wanda trailed her mother, forever angling for warmth and attention. She just wasn't a fan of being left alone. Perhaps because bad things happened to her when her mom and sisters weren't around. Wanda was allegedly molested by her father, Marvin, when she was just a girl. Notable psychiatrist Dr. Noel C. Gardner confirmed after reading Wanda's private diary that Barzi had emotional problems related to abuse in her childhood, so she had lots of emotional concerns. Researchers have long tried to parse out the effects of childhood sexual abuse. It's become clearer lately that such trauma may negatively disrupt brain development and function. That kind of child abuse may also predict lifelong psychopathology. Before we continue with Wanda's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to the article Brain and Mind Integration, Childhood Sexual Abuse Survivors, the psychological trauma of childhood sexual abuse usually results in deleterious mental and health effects, such as depression and anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, dissociative disorders, and recall impairments. In some cases, abused children dissociate by digging deep into an imaginary life with unseen friends. The younger the child, the more intricate their imagined life may become. 
In fact, the youngest children who dissociate may not only set up a handful of imaginary relationships, but they might also throw themselves into unprovoked tantrums that come seemingly from nowhere. Wanda displayed what could be seen as dissociation with her vast collection of baby dolls. To Wanda, her toy babies were as real to her as her sisters. She cared for them as intensely as she practiced piano. A diligent doll mom, she swaddled them up in blankets and stroked their little stuffed heads. She clutched her babies so tight, there was usually no prying them from her skinny arms. Wanda rarely let the babies out of her sight. She protected them fiercely from harm. In fact, if her sisters tried so much as to touch her dolls, she'd scream at the top of her lungs, "'She's mine!' Her sisters and mother learned to steer clear of Wanda's doll collection. They assumed she'd lighten up as she grew older, but even as she approached adolescence, Evelyn was troubled by her sister's intense behavior. But she chalked it up to Wanda being sensitive. As a teen, Wanda showed no interest in boys. Her classmates wondered why such a beautiful, smart girl never went on dates, but they all assumed Wanda was just painfully shy. So it came as quite a surprise to her schoolmates and to Wanda herself, when in 1963, days after graduating high school, she attracted a young boy from church. Wanda sat on the pew beside her mother. She focused on the preacher when she heard a soft psst. She turned and an eccentric boy passed her a note. It read, Hi. She stared ahead, ignoring him, but he was persistent. He handed over a few more notes before closing with, I'm Talmadge Thompson. What's your name? Dora answered for her daughter, mouthing, Wanda to the new suitor. The motherly endorsement was enough for Talmadge to send an alluring, Will you go out with me? The off-center couple married in 1964. In the beginning, Talmadge was a prince, always romancing 19-year-old Wanda and offering affection. As newlyweds, they welcomed their first daughter, Rhonda. By 1966, Wanda had three babies to care for. Already an anxious person, she was quickly overwhelmed. But Talmadge wanted to have a child every year. By Wanda's fourth pregnancy, she'd fallen into a deep depression. Still, Talmadge apparently insisted on expanding the family, whether Wanda liked it or not. As the years passed and her responsibilities increased, Talmadge's behavior became juvenile. He compulsively showed off with attention-seeking dances or by jumping off tables. Though he projected a larger-than-life spirit in public, in private he became a different man. At home, Talmadge reportedly grew bullish, domineering. Suddenly, he had no problem berating his wife. When words weren't enough, he hit Wanda and the kids. But Wanda hid her husband's alleged abuse from church friends by peddling images of the perfect family. She gussied up her kids just as she did her childhood collection of baby dolls, suits for her boys and tailored dresses for the girls. She was desperate for her neighbor's approval, but acquaintances felt interactions with Wanda were forced, insincere. They commented that she seemed weirdly submissive. 
Her sister always said she was a follower, and others agreed. Nobody could get a sense of who the real Wanda was. Adding to the stress at home, Talmadge couldn't hold down a job. He surrendered to financial difficulty, which only made him angrier. He spent money they didn't have and drove the family to duress. Ashamed, he fled home regularly during the 1970s. Wanda tried to keep the family afloat. She paid what bills she could and struggled to provide basic care for her kids. She took odd jobs doing hair or teaching piano, but clients hated coming to her chaotic house, so she had trouble holding on to work too. When she lost a client, Talmadge refused her the same benefit of the doubt she gave him. Instead, he beat Wanda and the children or whipped them with leather belts. And while, at least initially, Wanda didn't hit her kids, she did let the abuse happen. And when her children came to her for comfort, she distracted herself to avoid vulnerability. She met her kids' tears with apathy. If they accused Wanda of not being there for them, she responded by grabbing a knife and threatening to kill herself. She'd ask what they would do if she were gone, really gone forever. Wanda's early threats were just precursors to future abuses. Her kids would soon be forced to survive much, much worse. Up next, Wanda's first marriage falls apart, but her second husband takes her down an even darker path, one of profound mental illness and abuse. Hi, it's Carter from ParCast Network. The Vatican is one of the most recognizable religious sites in the world, but it's also a powerful institution, its unique history full of secrecy. This Easter, my show Conspiracy Theories looks deep into the church's past to uncover how it became what it is today. Starting April 5th, our new four-part miniseries, Mysteries of the Vatican, dives in to examine some of the most prominent conspiracy theories surrounding this mysterious organization. From the church's sordid rise to power, to prophetic visions, and even assassination attempts. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories, to hear Mysteries of the Vatican. New episodes air every Monday and Wednesday, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1964, 19-year-old Wanda Barzee married childish ne'er-do-well Talmadge Thompson. But once the honeymoon glow expired, Talmadge beat Wanda and her kids without remorse. But Wanda never once made an attempt to halt the battering or defend her children. 
In time, the years of abuse took their toll and Wanda became an abuser in her own right. When her oldest kids reached eight or nine years old, she threatened them regularly. She said that if they were dead, the family would be okay, maybe even better off. Sometimes she locked the pantry for days on end. Then she'd choose just the right moment to make a piping hot meal for herself. She'd call the kids to the dining room and indulge in front of her starving children, moaning in delight. As her kids got older, Wanda escalated to physical abuse. She hit them or pulled their hair, but the psychological torments were the ones that left lasting marks. As one of Wanda's daughters put it when interviewed by Oprah Winfrey, the physical wounds could always heal, but the scars of emotional abuse remained. Perhaps even worse was Wanda's neglect. The Thompson kids had no knowledge of right and wrong. In school, they acted out. Her boys even vandalized the neighborhood church. But instead of meeting out healthy discipline, she threatened suicide, hid from her children, or fell despondent. By 1983, 38-year-old Wanda wanted out of her life. It seems she came to the conclusion that since she hated her life so much, it was time to draft an exit plan and leave. Wanda's youngest daughter, Lou Ray, was about to turn eight. Around her birthday, her mother insisted she get baptized. Wanda stitched a new dress for Lou Ray, styled her hair, and promised to let her ride in the front passenger seat to the ceremony. In the weeks leading up to the baptism, Wanda seemed almost happy. But when Lou Ray's day finally arrived, Wanda was in a state. All the kids could feel it. Their mom was teetering on the edge of a nervous breakdown. Still, despite not wanting to go to church at all, the Thompson kids piled into her car. On the family's arrival, Wanda dropped the kids off at the entrance. She told them she'd be in after she found a parking spot. She watched her six children walk into the building. Behind her, a line of cars honked to encourage her to move on. When Lou Ray finally stepped up to the altar to be baptized, she looked at the congregation, but Wanda was nowhere to be seen. Suddenly, she knew. Her mom was gone, and she had a hunch Wanda wouldn't be returning home anytime soon. Wanda drove to her mother's and begged to stay. Dora eventually caved. Every day, she suggested Wanda contact her kids, but the days piled up. Wanda never picked up the phone. After months of hiding out, she finally found the guts to face her children and husband. But it was too late. Wanda's family had given up on her. The kids pulled away, ultimately refusing to see her. They knew they couldn't rely on her to be a real mom. Talmadge ignored her too. In 1984, a year later, he filed for divorce. The children stayed with him. Ashamed and angry, Wanda retreated deep into herself. Her dissociative behaviors flared up. Wanda knew she'd never repair the damage she'd done to her kids, so she stopped reaching out. She tried to make a fresh start instead. 
To that end, Wanda saw a doctor who prescribed psychotropic drugs, but she hated the idea of chemically altering her mind and simply refused to take them. To her, pills weren't the answer. God was. Devout as ever, she sought help through a group therapy program within the Mormon church. Even there, Wanda had trouble making friends. Still, she worked on picking up the pieces of her broken life. She secured a tiny apartment and volunteered as a church organist. She took typing courses and found a temp job, too. Though she was starting from scratch at 40 years old, Wanda was optimistic. But her positive outlook may have been the result of something else, meeting a handsome new man at group therapy. Brian David Mitchell was a thin man with gray eyes, Eight years Wanda's junior, 32-year-old Mitchell was a recovering LSD and heroin addict. Despite this, Wanda and Mitchell had quite a bit in common. They were both the black sheep of their families and both trying to get over troubled marriages. Like Wanda, Mitchell was timid in his demeanor and found it difficult to make friends. They were both artistic, Mitchell designed jewelry, and Wanda played the organ and could sew, and they shared a commitment to the Mormon church. But more than anything, Wanda and Mitchell connected because they were nursing shattered egos. Add that to their broken confidences and how much they feared being alone, and you had a match made in despair. Unlike her previous husband, Mitchell was a leader, Despite this, he was soft-spoken. He appeared steady, kind, too wonderful to be true. Perhaps if Wanda hadn't been so smitten, she'd have noticed his flaws. To others, Mitchell was a hopeless addict, sexually twisted and narcissistic, but she was blind to any red flag. The courtship was rocket quick, and in 1985, Mitchell proposed. On November 29, 1985, the very same day Mitchell's divorce from his previous wife was made official, he and Wanda married. But almost immediately, Wanda noticed a change in her groom's personality. While he never hit her, Mitchell's timidity gave way to bouts of screaming. Temper tantrums were now common. Wanda kept these rages to herself. She wanted others to think she'd found the perfect mate this time. But at home, she felt alone. Again. So in the fall of 1986, 41-year-old Wanda reached out to her children and asked them to live with her. Only the three youngest, Derek, Mark, and Lou Ray, gave her the time of day. They still lived with their father while the older kids were out on their own. Life under Talmadge's roof was still hard for the children, even in Wanda's absence. He hadn't found reliable work, and his temper was formidable. They thought it worthwhile to give their mom another shot. So by the new year, the three kids moved in with Wanda and Mitchell. Wanda was elated, determined to prove she could be a better mother now. She even let Mark bring his dog and little Lou Ray bring her pet bunny, Peaches. But when the kids settled into the newlyweds' apartment, they noticed their mom was acting even weirder than before. 
For starters, Wanda was even more withdrawn than they remembered. She never looked them in the eye. She ignored their attempts at conversation. Within days of their return, she unearthed an old crutch, her dusty, discarded baby doll collection. Once again, she began to care for them as if they were alive. While we can't be entirely certain what led Wanda back to this coping mechanism, she may have been afraid of a second rejection from her children. If they went back to live with her father, she'd have to face her shortcomings as a mother a second time. But her dolls would never leave her. Dr. Susan Morrow and Mary Lee Smith at the University of Utah Department of Educational Psychology conducted a study. They found that being sexually abused can produce intense emotions of grief, pain, and rage. Their research showed that to avoid threatening feelings, some victims nurtured themselves by playing with stuffed animals or dolls. One participant in the study confessed to playing with paper dolls. She said, they could never hurt me. As if she'd never missed a day caring for the stuffed babies, Wanda picked up right where she left off. She sewed new clothes for the dolls and swaddled them in cozy blankets. Wanda spoke to the dolls and marked their responses. She even carried them with her outside or buckled them into a car seat when she ran errands. Her actual kids were keenly aware that something wasn't right with their mom but it wasn't like they could bring their concerns to their mom's new husband. They noticed that something wasn't right with Mitchell either. He practiced hypnotism. He locked up the television at night. He even shot Mark's pet dog with his hunting rifle. When Mark asked why he would kill a sweet dog, Mitchell remarked the creature had gone mad. Beyond Mitchell's obvious oddities, 12-year-old Lou Ray was frightened by something in him she couldn't describe. His glances at her were invasive, as if he was staring past the surface of her body to make his way into her soul. If she gave him a hug goodnight, he held her just a tad too long. When she greeted him in the morning, he kissed her just a bit too eagerly. But Lou Ray never complained. One night during the family's nightly prayer session, Luray was kneeling between Mitchell and her mother. While Wanda was lost in prayer, Mitchell nudged his stepdaughter. When she turned to see what he wanted, he pulled something from his pocket, a stash of explicit photos. Slowly, he shuffled through them for Luray. Luray turned from Mitchell to finish her prayers, excused herself, and ran to her bedroom. She never told her mom about how uncomfortable Mitchell made her. Soon she'd realize that it wouldn't have mattered anyway. Her mom was too far gone. One day soon after Luray's 14th birthday, she came home from school and the apartment smelled divine. Her mother was in the best mood. When Luray asked what's for dinner, Wanda smiled. Mitchell answered, chicken. Then Wanda told her daughter to wash up. Supper would be ready soon. Luray was starving. At the table, she dug in. It had been so long since she'd had a home-cooked meal, she didn't come up for air. Luray cleaned her plate. Grateful, she thanked her mom and stepdad for the tasty dinner. Wanda giggled. Mitchell laughed too. But when Luray asked what was so funny, 
Wanda said nothing. Mitchell said they'd had fun cooking for their baby. The next morning, Luray got ready for school. Before breakfast, she went to the porch to feed her rabbit peaches, but the cage was empty. She ran into the kitchen to find Wanda at the stove. What happened to peaches? she cried. Robotically, Wanda replied, You ate her for dinner. Luray was disgusted, mortified. Days later, she ran away, back to her father's house. Apoplectic, Wanda didn't understand why her little girl left, but Mitchell assured her Luray was overreacting. Everything would be okay. She'd come back home for sure. And if she didn't, he'd go out and find Wanda a brand new daughter to love. Up next, Wanda and Mitchell hatch a plan to kidnap an innocent 14-year-old girl and make her their slave. Now back to the story. In 1990, 45-year-old Wanda Barzee tried to reconnect with her youngest children, inviting them to live with her again. But the kids noticed right away that her new husband, Brian David Mitchell, had a troubling effect on Wanda. It all came to a head when Wanda fed her youngest child, 14-year-old Luray, her pet rabbit for dinner. She ran away and never came back. Wanda decided if she couldn't have Lou Ray, she wanted nothing to do with the other two kids living with her. So she asked her sons to get out too. She told all of her kids they were dead to her. Having severed her family ties, Wanda and Mitchell's lives completely unraveled. By 1995, temp work dried up. Bills went unpaid. Wanda neglected to pay the rent on their tiny apartment in Salt Lake City. They got kicked out, scrambled to find a new home, then got kicked out again. Eviction became a pattern. They barely scraped by. Mitchell coped by throwing himself deep into his faith, which started to look less and less like Mormonism. He turned his back on materialism, too. Little by little, they inched away from the Mormon church, even though it had originally brought them together. The couple could no longer endorse the church's greediness. They insisted they were the only true disciples in a world of hypocritical sinners. Mitchell even accused the church of ignoring the destitute. The more he slammed the church, the more he realized his purpose. He'd been called by God to be a prophet, to help the homeless find their faith. Mitchell told Wanda he had access to the spirit world. They held hours-long seances together. He could hear the voices of forgotten prophets. She hung on his every word. When Wanda asked what messages the prophets had for Mitchell, he said they wanted him to sell their worldly possessions. Based on what we know about Mitchell, it seems very likely that he truly believed he was communicating with heavenly prophets. If this is the case, the voices he heard might have been hallucinations. This would be consistent with his eventual diagnosis of a delusional disorder. But Wanda had no idea her husband might be schizophrenic, so she felt compelled to do what the prophets said. 
After all, she was the perpetual follower. She let go of almost everything. The only thing she insisted on keeping was her favorite dusty old baby doll. By 1993, they'd sold all their belongings and changed their names to David and Elida. Mitchell chose his new name to honor the Old Testament's King David, who he believed was Jesus' ancestor. And Elida meant eternity of God, which to them seemed a right fit for Wanda. In 1995, they shunned modern apartment living entirely. Instead, they scraped up enough money to purchase a rusty trailer. Wanda and Mitchell rattled across Utah, calling on family, but the visits were fraught with tension. They'd accuse relatives of being too materialistic or hurl insulting epithets. Needless to say, they quickly wore out their welcome. So they set out in the trailer to crisscross the country. They headed to Ohio, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Alaska. Wherever they went, Mitchell introduced himself as a preacher. On street corners or in parks, he spun nonsensical, radical gobbledygook, mostly on deaf ears. Sometimes they panhandled for loose change or food, but they never earned enough. Eventually, the camper was repossessed. By the end of 1995, 50-year-old Wanda and 42-year-old Mitchell were truly homeless. They shacked up at shelters or camped along roadsides. In 1997, the couple hitchhiked home to Salt Lake City. They wandered downtown looking for shelter, but couldn't find anything. So they called the only person they could think to take them in, someone they hadn't seen in three years, Wanda's mother, Dora. It didn't take long for Dora to realize that her brilliant daughter was long gone. The Wanda she knew and loved had been replaced by a lost soul. There was nothing in her eyes, no love, no want. Her dissociative behaviors had taken over. To Dora, there was only one part of her baby girl she recognized anymore, the follower. Wanda had experienced multiple complex traumas throughout her life. The sexual abuse by her father as a young girl, the physical abuse by her first husband, the emotional loss of her children, it all began to add up and eclipse, or reveal, the truest parts of her. For Wanda, checking out seemed the only way to escape the emotions set off by her distressing past. She was happy to be a follower to Mitchell. She filled the role of disciple to a self-styled prophet. According to a study by Italy's Del Ponte Hospital and the University of Insubria, although dissociative symptoms are a defense mechanism against stress associated with traumatic events, they also may arise as a way to diminish the emotional responses triggered by traumatic memories, even after a long period from the traumatic event. Thus, thoughts are disconnected from emotions, and some behaviors can become automatic. Wanda disconnected her thoughts from her emotions almost entirely. The result? An emptiness that caused her to disappear behind robotic behaviors. Dora tried to warn her daughter that Mitchell had gone off the rails, but Wanda couldn't see it. 
Instead, she worked to convince her mother that Mitchell was a man of God, with her best interests at heart. But Dora didn't buy it. She and Wanda spent the days doing chores and making clothes, but argued nonstop about Mitchell. All the while, he was hatching a plan. He told Dora that he and Wanda would only stay a few more days. They had to isolate themselves so they could focus on building their new religion. Mitchell confessed he'd begun writing a new faith's holy book. He'd secured a teepee and wanted to take Wanda to live in the Wasatch Mountains, north of Salt Lake. When Dora voiced her dissent about his plans, Mitchell flew into a fury. Seething, he demanded Wanda grab the few things she owned. Again, she did as she was told. On their way out, Mitchell slammed the door so hard it shook the house. That was the last time Wanda saw a close family member for years. Through 1998 and 1999, Wanda was entirely at the mercy of Mitchell, following wherever his fancy led them. They lived on the streets of Salt Lake City or hid in the hills. All the while, Mitchell recited his new doctrine to his wife. Wanda took down his dictation in perfect calligraphy. On Thanksgiving Day 2000, as they were finishing up their new religious text, Mitchell changed his name yet again, this time to Emmanuel, and he demanded they rid themselves of their street clothes. Wanda stitched simple robes and colors fit for royalty. She wanted her man to feel confident in deep purples and pure white. Newly clothed, Mitchell was optimistic. He took to panhandling, preaching as he begged. Wanda remained by his side, a dead-eyed, silent, subservient bride. By December 2000, 55-year-old Wanda had become nothing more than Mitchell's prop for begging. He'd point her out as commuters passed, shouting that this poor woman needed charity, that she'd lost all she had. Wanda never put up a fight. She'd given in to him fully. In some way, though she had nothing, she still believed she had all she ever wanted, a man to love and protect her, and she wanted to support him. So when Mitchell told her he'd had a revelation, she asked him to share every detail. Mitchell told his wife that God made him the prophet Emmanuel David Isaiah, and she was now to be called Hepzibah Elada Isaiah. He said God told him he should accept seven new brides and that they would be Hepzibah's sister wives. Wanda was to accept these girls as thy dearest and choicest friends from all eternity. God was explicit that Emmanuel's brides should be very young to ensure their minds and spirits weren't yet fully formed. Shaken by the news that God asked Mitchell to take on new wives, Wanda questioned him. But he reminded her of his promise to give her a new daughter when Luray left. He asked her to think of his new brides as her babies. Wanda agreed. As they prepared to search for the brides, Wanda gripped her last baby doll tightly. She never let it go. 
Soon after Wanda and Mitchell completed their radical doctrine, Mitchell titled the 27-page book, The Book of Emmanuel David Isaiah. Finally, the time was right to spread the word. The pair washed up in a mountain stream. They cut their hair and Mitchell shaved. Now somewhat presentable, they took their book to the streets. The plan, as always, was to preach and beg, preach and beg. It was a crisp November morning when well-to-do mother and wife Lois Smart took her daughters out for a shopping date. In front of the mall, she was stopped by a slender, soft-spoken panhandler with big gray eyes. The beggar was clean-cut and polite, but clearly malnourished. Lois took pity on him and reached into her pocketbook. The man asked her about her faith, and she said she was Mormon. He said he was a preacher for Salt Lake's homeless. Impressed, Lois asked the panhandler his name. He replied, Emmanuel. She handed him five dollars and set off down the street with her two young daughters, nine-year-old Mary Catherine and fourteen-year-old Elizabeth. Mitchell tagged behind the smarts for a moment, carrying on the conversation with Lois, but locking his eyes on young Elizabeth. He was fascinated by her. Her innocence was apparent. Suddenly, Mitchell knew. This child was to be the first of his new wives. She would be his gift to Wanda, the new daughter he'd promised over a decade ago. Then, as if prompted by God, Lois made Mitchell an offer, a job. Her husband couldn't pay much, but they needed some help with a leaky roof. If he was interested, the work would take about a week. Mitchell eagerly accepted. As the smart ladies said their goodbyes, Mitchell's thoughts raced to concoct a plan. He watched them cross State Street and kept his gaze on Elizabeth as she faded from view. When he was sure she was gone, he raced to his wife. His voice trembled as he shared his divine news. He found her. He found Wanda's new baby. The only thing left to do was bring her home. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two. We'll see how Wanda Barzee helped Brian Mitchell kidnap Elizabeth Smart and her role in the months of abuse and torture. For more information on Wanda Barzee, amongst the many sources we used, we found Held Captive, The Kidnapping and Rescue of Elizabeth Smart by Maggie Haberman and Jean McIntosh, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by John Levinson, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 